If you are new today, uh, I am preaching through the book of Genesis, and uh, I know those of you who have been through this study with me uh, wondered if I'd ever get out of Genesis 1, but since then we're moving along, we're doing okay, we're in Genesis 15, so if you would turn with me there. Uh, we're in the, in the midst of the life of Abraham, called Abram, uh, God will change his name a little bit later. So Genesis 15. I love the life of Abraham. Uh, one of the things that I'm thankful for, for being in a Reformed church, is that we consider the Old Testament uh, valid for us today and, and useful. And, and uh, I feel like Abram's my friend, even though I have never met him. So I can relate to him a lot. No one likes to wait. And the more excited you are about something, the harder it is to wait. If you wait for something long enough, doubt and fear can replace hope and anticipation. Is that not true? I'm here to tell you that the Christian life is one of waiting. God has made the greatest possible promises to you in Jesus Christ. But he has not given to you the final installment or the final fulfillment of those promises. Plenty of good things he gives you along the way. Certainly gives you his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of those promises. But no matter how long you live in this world, at the end of your life, you will still be waiting. Are you prepared for that? You know, the thief on the cross didn't have to wait too long, did he? He didn't believe until the end, and then he just went. But those of us covenant kids, are you prepared to wait if God tarries for 60, 70, 80 years? Just waiting. A life of waiting. A life of faith is a life of waiting. It is a life of continuing to trust that God will indeed be faithful to fulfill his promises to you. And so I ask, are you waiting today? Or have you quit waiting and began chasing after the promises of this world? Knowing whether you are still waiting is not always easy to discern. But God knows. And if you are willing to take the time to honestly reflect of your own heart, trusting in the Holy Spirit, He will show you whether you are waiting or not as well. The writer of Hebrews says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. But... Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Oh, there are times in our lives where we are a bit sluggish, right? A very good definition of what it means to be a Christian is someone who continues to wait upon God to fulfill 
to him all of his promises. And so God sets Abram before us as a model of waiting. That's what he's doing. The ups and the downs of Abram's life, they're not random. They are lived out by God's providence for us to look at. And so we can see Abram's ups and downs. We can see him strong in the faith and weak in the faith. And we can resonate with him. That's what he wants. And when we last left Abram, he was on the top of his game. His faith had resulted, we said four things, resulted in his love towards Lot. Right? His faith had resulted in great courage in the face of a stronger enemy. His faith had resulted in great humility after that victory. And his faith also resulted in fellowship with God. And so, you might be tempted to think that Abram's journey would be smooth sailing from here on out. His faith would always be strong. He got it figured out. After such powerful victories, he won't need encouragement. But if you think that way, you would be very wrong. You know, the problem with life is that it's daily, right? In today's passage, we find Abram experiencing fear and doubt. And as far as we know, at this point in his life, there has not been any new crisis that has caused these feelings in Abram. Instead, it seems to be that he just has been waiting and he had certain expectations of the fulfillment of these promises, but his life just doesn't seem to be turning out like he had hoped. I mean, he had had conquered one army, but he didn't conquer those kingdoms. I'm reminded of like Pearl Harbor, right? Japan won at Pearl Harbor, but then they lost the war, right? So here's Abram. He just might have just awoken a sleeping giant. <clears throat> he has um, been promised that he would take possession of the whole promised land. But he's still living as a stranger. He has been given some wealth, that's to be sure, but he has no heir to pass that wealth on to. You know, kind of the thought of, man, I've worked all my life to have these things, and I have nothing to pass, no one to pass them on to. You know, there's a certain loss there. What has it all been for? He has these, these incredible promises from, from God, but not one of them has really fully been fulfilled yet. And the longer he lives, the harder it is to continue believing those promises. And this is where we find Abram. So if you would, open your Bibles. We're going to read Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, uh, if you're able to them, number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his holy word. As you read verse 1, it's easy to miss that God knows what is going on inside of Abram. It's easy to miss that God is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who comes to Abram in his fear and doubt. And so I would stress to you today, even though you might not always think this is true, God knows precisely how you're feeling. He is deeply concerned with your feelings, and he is especially concerned when you are feeling afraid. Often we will treat God's multiple commands in the Bible of fear not in sort of a scolding way. Like, what's your problem? Quit being afraid. Right? And I'm not saying that God could never rebuke his people to not be afraid. I mean, he can do that. But I am saying that in this passage particularly, 
God is full of compassion. He is working to uh, uh, alleviate the fears and the doubts that are going on inside of Abram. He's not being harsh with Abram at this time. It is something like uh, if your child has experienced their first thunderstorm and they are petrified of that storm. Right? You see, because in, in a thunderstorm, the parent comes alongside and he says, it's okay, don't be afraid, it's going to be fine, right? That, that kind of mentality, that's the picture I have here. It doesn't have to be a tangible thunderstorm. We all have fears and doubts, and whether they're tangible or intangible, it's always the same. You are afraid of something that will harm you. Whether it's real or imagined. And God enters into this situation. He meets Abram. And what is interesting, he doesn't remove the cause of the fear. He could do that, but he doesn't. Instead, he speaks words of comfort into his fears. I am your shield. Now, A shield protects you from harm. He also says, I am your very great reward. In other words, he's assuring Abram that that all of his fears will not result in the loss of the blessing that he has promised to him. You know, when a child is experiencing fear and a parent comes in and says things like, I'm here, everything is going to be okay. That's, that's a good thing. You should say that as parents. But ultimately, you know, you can't really stop every harm, can you? <laughs> but God is saying that. He's basically saying, it doesn't matter what the power, what the fear that stands against you. I am your shield and your reward, and nothing is going to harm you. <clears throat> and if you're confidence is strong, your faith is strong, you might only need those words. That might be enough. But isn't it refreshing that we can relate to Abraham because he needs a bit more? You ever hear, oh, don't be afraid. It's okay. God's in control. And you're like, but I'm still afraid. It's refreshing that your model actually expresses doubt in the midst of these words of comfort. In verse 2, Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? I'm childless. He doesn't try to hide from God his fears. You ever try to do that? Put on a strong face to God? Oh, I'm okay. Or maybe not to God, but just to other Christians. I'm doing fine. I'm fine. No problems. Good to go. Abram is refreshing because he is honest with God. Now, if you were Abram in our day and you were wanting a child, what you would be asking for is a positive pregnancy test. Right? That's what you're wanting. Oh, Lord, I'm childless. Give me a positive pregnancy test. Give me some heartbeat that I can listen to and say, oh, I've got a child. But that's not the way God works, is it? How often do you yearn for something, some blessing, and God seems to say, eh, 
not giving it to you right now. He seems to, in some, for some reason that we don't understand, hold back the blessing. We don't understand why. Instead of giving Abram what he wants, God simply reiterates the promises again, only more emphatically. Right? Verses 4 and 5. This guy's not going to be your heir. Someone from your very own loins will be your heir. And you can, let's go out and count the stars. That's how many your offspring are going to be if you can count them. It would have been easy for Abram to have said, God, uh, you told me that before. I don't see it happening. They are nice sounding words, but they are not coming true. God could have done something right then to prove himself to Abram. But I believe it would have defeated his very purpose. You see, the whole point, the whole point of life, if you're going to narrow it down into one single thing, trust God's word. Peter speaks of faith as being more precious than gold. When you, as someone who is doubting and fearing, hear the word of promise and you trust it, that is precious to God. And God wants your entire life to be a life of faith. It's very important to understand in this passage that the bare word of God should be enough. It is impossible for God to lie. If he tells you something, it's going to happen. And I find it so wonderful in this entire passage that God doesn't just Say, okay, I told you, that's good. You should either believe or not. He, he stoops down to Abram and he ministers to him and he helps Abram in his continuing struggle to believe. It's really a precious thing in this passage. God does nothing to show Abram the fulfillment of the promises. He just reiterates them. And Abram in verse 6 responds in one of the most glorious passages, verses of Scripture, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. We are not told how hard this was for Abram. We don't know if there was a great internal struggle within him or if it was relatively easy All we have before us is that he believed. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that faith is a gift of God. But how or why Abram believes is not the point. All that matters at this point is that he does believe. Now, just to be clear on this, Abram, at this point, does nothing to prove that he believes. Okay? The only reason why we know that he believes is that the narrator tells us, and we trust the narrator. And I would tell you that faith 
is, is an internal motion of the soul to trust. You can trust the promise sitting right here, and I would not know. There's Ken, there's Gary. Ken could be believing. Gary could not be believing. I wouldn't have any clue at the beginning. Now, James tells us that when somebody does believe, if it's a living faith, it ushers forth in many fruits. I know that. That's true. But at the beginning here, Abram does nothing. He simply believes. That's the mechanism. That is what God has said. This is the one way in which any of his people receive the blessing simply by believing. Faith is the only instrument by which we receive God's promises. It's not faith plus something else. It's not faith and he did this. It's just he believed. And I ask you today, are you believing in the promises? Every other problem in your life is insignificant. Everything else that you do throughout your day, if you are not believing, you should throw a lot of stuff away. (laughs) Believing is the most important issue. Well, Abram does believe. We know that because it says it. And how does God respond to that faith? The word says that he counts it to him as righteousness. I would have thought that it would have said, and God was pleased and reiterated that he's going to give him the promises. What, do we ta- what is the connection between righteousness and the blessing? <clears throat> how are they related? Well, you know this from the rest of Scripture. It really takes God unfolding his promises over time. It really takes God showing up on Mount Sinai and everybody being afraid of his presence because he's showing his holiness for people to really get this as time goes on. But God is beginning it right here, and this is the, the point. Only righteous people can have blessing. It's fundamental to the whole Bible. Psalm 11, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. It's a fundamental problem. If you are not righteous, you cannot enjoy God's blessing. And so here's the next question. Well, who's righteous? And Clark said it at the beginning today. No one is righteous. Now, I know that the Bible at times speaks about certain people being righteous and others not being righteous. And a lot of times we say it's, it's kind of like a comparison thing. you got the wicked over here and you got the righteous here. But when God speaks about his, his perfect righteousness and being uh, accepted into his blessing, only absolute righteousness will do. And no one meets that standard. And you've had the rest of the, 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 the scripture, so you immediately know, well, Jesus and Clark led us to that, and our Romans 4 passes leads us to that. But you can imagine Abram just going, you count me righteous? Huh. You know, like, what's going on there? And I think the same thing is true for you and I. If you do not 
experience wonder that someone who is still corrupt and full of sin can be given words of promised blessing, you don't understand the gospel. You should be like, what? No, 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 I don't deserve the blessing. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm listening to um, uh, some of the Harry Potter books on cassette. Um, And so uh, one of the elves, when he does something bad, he immediately wants to beat himself up. I think that's us. When you feel your sin and you feel your corruption, you just know, God, you should hate me. And you should be in wonder that he promises blessing to you in Jesus Christ. It was easy for me to think, oh, just preach the first six verses and don't preach this covenant ceremony until next week. But I think it's important to bring them together. Because you might think that because you have the bare word of God at this moment and Abraham believes, then you don't need anything else. But God knows better. And he knows that he's going to take Abram through some real valleys of where his faith is going to be weak. And so even before he goes into those valleys of darkness, he he gives to Abram something more. He gives to him a covenant ceremony. This is an oath. This is a swearing of the oath. This This is something formal, okay? Now, in this ceremony, uh, God basically has the, the, the animals cut in half. Very gruesome, by the way. Very death-invoking. And the, the idea is that whoever passes between these animals, if they do not keep their promises, what happened to the animal should happen to them. And in this passage, you would expect Abram to actually have to pass through the animals. But he does not. God alone passes through the animals. And he's literally telling Abram, if I do not keep my promises to you, I'm going to cut myself in half and die like the animals. Now, God, number one... God's never going to die. You can't kill God. (laughs) But the fact that he's willing to submit himself to this covenant ceremony, he is stooping down to a level so that Abram in his doubts can say, oh my goodness, God says he will never back out of this promise. The covenant ceremony is nothing more than an acted out oath. If I were going to boil down what this ceremony says, I'll try to do it in the contrast. He is not saying to Abram, if you, Abram, da da da, then I will, da da da. 
He's not saying that to Abram. If that's what he was saying to Abram, Abram should have walked through the pieces as well. He is saying to Abram, I am going to do this. I find it really amazing that in the midst of him promising to do this, he gives Abram bad news. Does he not? He says to Abram, oh, by the way, your people are going to go down to Egypt. That's, we know that from where they, you know, to another land. And they're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. That's bad news. And by the way, you personally, Abram, you're just going to be a sojourner. You're going to live your life and you're going to die. That is not good news. He's basically telling him the promise is not going to be fulfilled in your lifetime, but I am going to fulfill it. Hebrews 11 says that Abram, along with the others, died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. How kind is our God? That he is willing to pronounce a curse on himself so that we can have confidence that he will follow through. The final verses, I'm almost to the conclusion, but the final verses speak of a very specific portion of land that God will give to Abram. And he says it's from the river Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. And if you look at my map over there, you you can... It's like from one side of the map all the way over to the other side of the map. The river Euphrates is is a long way away. The river Egypt is larger than the promised land that we think of. So trying to understand God's promises to Abram at this time, telling him, I'm going to give you all this land, it's going to be yours, is a little bit tricky, and theologians have struggled over, over many years, and I'm just going to just zoom through this. So if you have more questions later, that's fine. Three solutions. One... Smaller, one exact, one larger, okay? The smaller solution is that God never really meant Euphrates in Egypt. He's just kind of speaking hyperbole, and he just means the promised land. David and Solomon fulfilled that land when they had their reigns. The second is that it will be exactly fulfilled, but only during the millennium, the future millennium. And the third is that it will be larger than that, And that means the entire new heavens and new earth. And I hold to the last of those, that they are partially fulfilled under David and Solomon, but they're really not until the new heavens and the new earth. I say that to you to tell you today that there's not some temporal fulfillment that we're looking forward to. We are looking forward to an eternal new heavens and new earth. And you will wait until you die to receive that. Every Christian is waiting for this. And the way that you will receive that promised inheritance is by faith alone. That's the only thing. It's not by works. It's not by added other things. It's simply by saying, I believe and I am willing to wait. So, my question to you, are you waiting? 
Are you a bit sluggish in your waiting? Hebrews 10 says, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God just simply wants you to fix your eyes on Christ, to say, I believe that he will give me the promises, no matter what it looks like in my present life, in my situation, I am trusting because God will not go back on his promise. That's the only means by which we're saved. It seems simple. It seems easy. It is very simple, but it is not easy. Every person in this room at some point says, you know, I'm not sure that I really want to wait. Give me present blessing now. We've all done it. I've done it. And that's shameful. So even when you have failed to trust in the promise, guess what you need again? The promise. You fall back and say, Lord, I have failed. I have not done what I need to do. But my hope is not in my perfect perfection. My hope is in your promise in Jesus Christ. You will not perfectly believe. Your faith does not save you. It is the mechanism by which Jesus saves you. Look to Jesus Christ. Place your hopes on him. The things of this world are pitiful. Trust in his eternal promises. That's your only hope. Amen.